All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's Tuesday, March the 18th, 2014. This is a STEM Seeds show. I'm Wes Fryer, and I'm connected from Oklahoma City to Brian Crosby in Reno, Nevada. Thank you so much for being here, Brian. Oh, thrilled to be here. (laughs) Well, we're excited to be talking about uh, some lesson plan ideas and STEM and what STEM is and what isn't and hearing a little bit about Brian's journey um, to his position now as a STEM coordinator. And uh, again, we, I, I don't know. My lap, my, my machine does not like the question answer feature evidently of Hangouts because I could not turn this on before we started our broadcast. But, um, um, we'll just, uh, we'll see if we, we, we probably will get some viewers that are going to come on and join us. Um, before we do, Brian, what have you done with Google Hangouts? We'll kind of buy some time here while I go over and, and tweet a couple links here. You were just saying that you did a Google Hangout recently with, with, uh, another STEM teacher in Nevada for a project. Yeah, um, here in Nevada, I was um, contacted uh, last spring by a teacher that uh, I guess every year she um, hatches uh, chicken eggs in her classroom, and uh, um, she said the problem was that I think six out of the seven years she had done it, um, the eggs tend to hatch at night, and so then the kids don't get to see the chicken eggs actually doing their thing, and so... um, she wanted to have a way to um, not only record that, but also to maybe broadcast it so you could watch it live. And, uh, boy, I went through all kinds of um, permutations to try to figure that out. In fact, it was um, um, I went on Twitter and asked, and um, uh, Chris, uh, oh, darn, from uh, – I think he's in South Carolina. Um, oh, darn. He um, came on and said, okay, we'll, pardon? We'll put, it, we'll put it in the show notes. That's okay. Yeah. Um, he came on Twitter and said, hey, use Google Hangouts. And then he explained how to do it. And, and I had never uh, – I hadn't done Google Hangouts in a long time and had only just used it for meetings and stuff. And in fact, I don't think I ever even set up a Hangout on my own. I just, you know, joined ones that were going. And and so uh, he explained that, yeah, it will report it even to a, for, you know, a YouTube video, which he thought at the time would just go, you know, in an unlimited length. So we tried it out a couple times and found out that it cuts off at four hours. So, uh, oh, that's good to know. Yeah. And so uh, sure enough, we got set up for her, and, uh, and as she got closer to the date that it might happen, she'd just get in the habit of when she left her classroom every night uh, Turning it on and uh, and leaving, and sure enough, they didn't uh, catch the uh, hatching live, and then they have it recorded. So uh, thought that That's was a great. Really, uh, great way, and also demonstrates how you use Twitter and 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 other pieces of social media as a professional learning network. Because I Absolutely. wouldn't I wouldn't have figured that out without going on Twitter and and having Chris help me out. That's right. Okay, well, we got, got this tweeted out, and I see we have a few viewers that are joining us. Um, this is Wes Fryer in Oklahoma City, Brian Crosby in Reno, Nevada, and we'll just jump jump right into our program. Um, for some reason, <laughs> my uh, my Google Hangout, as great as this is, 
uh, did not allow me to start the Q&A before the broadcast, and I promise I really, I really did try. So I don't know if I need an updated plug-in or whatever, but we'd love to get feedback uh, and questions for folks who are tuning in. Um, I did tweet the link to our show notes, uh, which we'll be typing on both during the, the show and after. But if you just want to um, send a tweet, you can put um, uh, stem seeds into your um, – your tweet, and uh, we will take a look at that. And uh, Ryan and I'll try to juggle. It's always fun to try and yeah. talk and maintain your train of thought while you're looking at other things. So Brian had a great idea for the first suggestion. We're going to talk a little bit about his background, but Brian, what is STEM and what is STEM not, and why is that a good question to kind of begin with? Well, when I first um, got this position a little over, well, almost a year and a half ago now, um, one of the things that that we were running into was there were a number of schools that were coming online and, and um, defining themselves as being a STEM school. And when you visit these schools, um, more often than not, they would have things like Wednesday was their STEM day um, or uh, their STEM day was certain periods of time during the day. So they weren't really integrating STEM um, at all, they would just, it was really just science class with, uh, you know, some engineering um, built in and, and let's use some technology sometimes and let's try to collect data that we can um, uh, crunch so that we have the, uh, the math piece. So it was more going through the motions, and if you define some in the way a lot that some schools were doing it, then we're all STEM schools because you know if you do if you pull out the science book a couple days a week and, and and read out of the science book, then you know you could check off the the S for science piece, and then well we go to the the school computer lab you know uh, once a week for a half hour or whatever, and. And, and, and or we've got some technology pieces in our classroom. And so, boy, there's the technology piece. We do that every week. And then, um, gee, let's uh, do the folding paper airplanes piece this week, and then we'll go outside and fly them, and then we'll bring them back and try to make them better. And so that's kind of the engineering design process. So we can check off engineering, and, hey, we have math every day. So, see, we're a, we're a STEM school. You know, we do all those things. and But that's not really STEM. Uh, STEM is a culture. It's not a time of day or a day of the week. It's um, something that's integrated into um, all your thought processes about what you're going to do. Um, some people ask me, so isn't that really just, you know, kind of the old uh, integrating your, your day kind of piece, especially in elementary school? And I say, yeah, it, it is, um, but there's a lot more project-based um, pieces to it. STEM doesn't always have to be project-based, but I think uh, during the course of the year, um, depending on grade level and whatever, you need to uh, um, include a couple of longer-term um, projects that you certainly have an end date in mind, but uh, I can tell you that probably the majority of the time that end date comes and goes because you're not quite done yet. Um, but, you know, you can be doing small pieces of STEM all the time. Um, that uh, I think a lot of that comes from when you do a science activity or you do an engineering activity, always try to find the data pieces and collect those and then um, think about how you can use those um, in math class, um, not just to say you did math, um, 
but you know, what are we doing in math, and where does this data fit in there? Um, can we do something? You know, I'm doing fractions right now, say or whatever, or I'm going to be doing fractions. Is there something we can do with that that actually fits here and is fairly valuable, so that uh, um, when we crunch this data, it's um, um, actually aligns with my standards or whatever. Not that it always has to be that way, because certainly you could crunch uh, data in ways that was really math from, say, a year ago or more, because, um, you know, it's always good to practice and, and thinking about the data that you've collected and, and whatever in, in, in new ways. But uh, whenever possible, I think, being able to fit it into your um, um, standards anyhow, I think that's where we've got to, we have to really go. It's really intriguing work. It's motivating for the students. Um, especially when you're a connected educator and all that's going out shared on the on the web and uh, you're sometimes even collaborating, um, um, not just with each other in class, but, uh, um, you know, worldwide. I mean, even the, the um, Common Core Standards, um, I've got a, I should have brought a copy of it. I went through and just out of the Common Core ELA, I pulled out, I think, seven pages of standards that, that tie to STEM. They're mostly about collaboration and using technology that way, but also writing about, um, you know, every subject and, um, um, but tons of stuff on collaborating. And I don't think they mean by, uh, you know, sending letters back and forth to uh, China or something. It's, it's got to be that we're, you know, actually collaborating. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's great stuff. I mean, kids learn so much. Um, that we don't even intend that's not necessarily science that, you know, you're, um, you're video conferencing in with a school in, in New Zealand and they come on and, and express to you that they are from your future and the kids are like, what? And well, see, it's, uh, it's, uh, eight o'clock, uh, you know, uh, uh, Wednesday morning, uh, here in New Zealand and it's two o'clock in the afternoon there and, in Nevada. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh. That experience makes it makes it real. Makes it. Clear. Yeah, exactly. And then afterwards, it's like even though you've taught that lesson and brought the world globe out and had the flashlight and it's dark on one side and it's light on the other and and the sucker's spinning and and you've got and kids get that and they can even pass the test, I guess, about that. When all of a sudden they're faced with a real world experience of that, it's like what you know and. And so it's just cements all that. You guys remember when we pulled out the flashlight in the club? Oh, yeah, that really happens. You know, it's, um, it's pretty amazing stuff. Um, and you get all kinds of other conversations going, oh, what do you mean it's, it's you know, fall, you know, about to be fall in, in New Zealand, and it's about to be spring here. What? You know, so it's um, – yeah. Um, you know. That's probably we could. That's not a technical, uh, you know, kind of description. But having those kids have the what, yeah. <laughs> you know, that the cognitive dissonance aha moment, right? That's it's exactly. a big goal. Or, or even just things that you know kids know, like like that it's you know warm in Florida and you're you're skyping in um, a class in Florida, and I've had this happen on several occasions in other places around the world where um, they're talking about how it's you know. 74 degrees there and and my students are looking out the window and it's snowing and somehow even that is a is a dissonance for them they you know 
they they know that, and the kids in Florida are like, it's snowing. We've never seen it snow, and and it's just amazing. Um, we staked in a, a fourth grade class in um, Louisiana once, and they came on holding up little um, crawfish to the to the camera, and my kids were like, whoa, what's that? And so uh, you know, those things just really are. Um, more powerful pieces than you realize. I mean, you're really maybe video conferencing in to share about the space unit you just did, but there's so much else that goes along with that. It's, it's pretty right. It's integrated learning. Well, for those of you that are joining us, uh, I'm Wes Fryer in Oklahoma City. Brian Crosby's in Reno, Nevada. This is STEM Seeds, and uh, we're talking about what STEM is and what it's not. And uh, Brian, you talked about project-based learning, inquiry learning, engineering design. Before we go to ask you a little bit about your background, what do you think is the hardest part of what STEM is to help not only teachers get, but principals get. Like you said, some schools will define themselves as, as STEM schools. What's the hardest part of that to help people understand and embrace? Um, that, like I said before, that STEM is really a culture. It's really um, that uh, it's it's a huge change. It's it's going from siloed um, um, and scheduled pieces all during the day, which you still do. But it's also that um, you've got to let go sometimes of the fact that reading is supposed to be 9 to 10.30. And um, sometimes when you're hot and heavy into a project, and especially when you're towards the end where you're um, hopefully producing um, um, content at the end, um, and along the way for that matter, that um, it becomes so... Um, um, involving that you need all day long for a week or 10 days um, just to get, you know, finished up. But, but then you stop and think, but look what we're doing. We're to do this end product, whatever it is. There's, we're doing lots of reading and research. So, you know, we're, we're really doing that stuff and we're, we're writing like mad and we're using um, the things and the teacher's constantly able to point out to us um, the connections to the lessons that we've done on explicit writing lessons and, and reading lessons and math lessons and whatever, and helping us connect that to what we have to be able to do in the real world. And, um, you know, I think that's a, um, a, a huge part for people that um, they're so used to, um, you know, a time of day being the, the, the forerunner of that. And, Certainly, I know um, myself, and I run into teachers a lot, that, you know, coming off 10, 12 years of no child left behind, and depending on your exact school and your classroom classroom's experience, um, you know, I was at a school where we slowly just eroded away until it was just math and literacy, and there was no science or social studies. or And um, I was specifically told that I would not be doing hands-on science or projects anymore that we read about science and we read about social studies and, um, you know, learn to use the charts and stuff in the book and um, use the textbook and, and, and how to use the captions under the pictures and, and that kind of thing, because that might be on the test. Um, and so thankfully we're breaking out of that again and people are understanding what a mistake that was. So, uh, wow. Wow. Um, well, well, that segues a little bit to your background. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and then kind of go back in time a little bit and talk about how, how you got here. All right. So right now I am 
the STEM learning facilitator for Northwest Nevada's Regional Professional Development Program. So uh, that's a uh, mouthful. Yeah, it is. We complain about that every time we have to say it. Um, and so what that means is Nevada's been broken up into three regions. Um, I technically work for the state now instead of a school district. Um, and so my region is six counties in northwest uh, Nevada. So uh, uh, I guess I won't name all the counties, but first uh, okay. City is one of them, and uh, Washoe County, where Reno is, is another. Some of those counties are very rural. Um, Eastern Nevada is is rural in the extreme. I mean, there's um, in Nevada school districts by state constitution are by counties, which is why Clark County, where Las Vegas is, has 340,000 students. Some that's the sixth, fifth, or sixth largest in the in the country. And uh, Washoe, um, where uh, my office is, where Reno and Sparks are, um, is about 63,000 students, but there's school districts in eastern Nevada that have like, you know, 40 students. It's, you know, that's the whole county. And the counties are humongously large um, uh, land-wise. So, uh, shows well, one, how we are. One, one connection I hope we can make, um, Chris Simon was a STEM teacher at, at Independence Elementary where I am now. And he's now a STEM coordinator for the Girl Scouts of Western Oklahoma. Uh, they've got a grant through Oklahoma State University, and part of what he does is put together STEM kits to try to empower leaders who are working on badges with girls to have good activities that they can do that tie to hands-on science and data collection and, you know, integrated learning. So uh, hearing you talk about rural, you know, immediately makes me think of Chris because the majority of Girl Scout troops that they're working with are, are very rural. Of course, we have a lot, you know, in Oklahoma City. But um, anyway, that would be be a connection to make because I think, you know, there's lots of pieces to the puzzle of STEM, but but definitely uh, putting things in people's hands and giving them those ideas to say, here, it's something you can do next week. Here's something you can do tomorrow. Um, you know, is is a is an important piece of the puzzle. That's right. That's right. So how did this come about? Was this a grant that Nevada got, or how, how did was no. somebody in this role before you, or did you start uh, this one? Or? No, there was nobody in this role before me. Um, there, there was a science trainer who was completely overwhelmed, and <laughs> because you know all of a sudden you know science became okay again, and um, and so uh, <laughs> they, they all of a sudden wanted to have um, um, somebody that had more of a STEM background because there were. Um, um, a few of the middle schools in Washoe County became STEM academies as part of a um, TIF 4 grant. And so, uh, you know, kind of a school improvement kind of a piece. And so, uh, um, you know, they uh, jumped off the cliff of trying to become uh, STEM schools. And it's, you know, been a little bit rocky because there's not a ton of great examples out there to go by. I mean, STEM's been around for a long time. But to have a school that's specifically a STEM school is, is actually, you know, pretty recent. So, uh, you know, if you've been doing uh, STEM for three, four or five years, you know, you're a grizzled veteran of, 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 of doing that. Um, I'm sure there's examples of that that are over much bigger spans of time, but there's sure not very many of them. And, um, um, and so... Uh, uh, I was saying uh, the, what my job really does is I run around and um, 
Um, I do model lessons in classrooms and, and show up at schools and consult. And we run, uh, we've done a number of family STEM nights at different schools and counties. And um, I talk to groups and I'm on state uh, advisory councils. I just got put on the Nevada one-to-one. Um, um, they're, they're looking at uh, possibly making Nevada be the next main. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, uh, wow. I'm the council that's trying to define STEM so that people can't hijack it and, and you know, claim their STEM when they're really not. We don't want, you know, to uh, kind of get a bad name. On the other hand, it's, it's interesting. Everybody that's on that agrees that, you know, we're thrilled uh, uh, that we're bringing a broad, rich curriculum back in the classroom. We don't care what you call it. You know, if you want to call it STEM, you know, great. We'll go with that. But uh, it's really, to me, more about just bringing back a broad, rich curriculum that, that includes everything. So uh, Yeah, um, absolutely. It's an opportunity to, to have that kind of a focus and, and move away from such siloed, limited exactly. um, non-experiential, non-hands-on on learning. Well, let's look, get a little bit into the, the lesson ideas and examples. And I'll, I'll repeat for folks, uh, if you want to tweet and put our at STEM seeds, I'm periodically jumping over here to take a look at our, our interactions. So we've got um, a few folks who have uh, who've tweeted a few things. So, But please, you know, interact with us. That's one of the good things about a Google Hangout is a chance to do this. So l- let's just say... Um, your favorite lessons. So, if, if you were having a chance to work with uh, with a class, and let's, I'll, I'll selfishly put that to elementary, and then maybe we can think of, of things that would go higher. But if, if you're thinking about my kids, fourth and fifth, you know, y- you were the source of the uh, marshmallow challenge. We're going to be doing the cantilever, you know, here in a little bit uh, from from family STEM nights. But what? Um, just personally, what do you what are what, what's what's your favorite lesson to teach with kids? Where you really have a lot of those aha moments, and you feel like a lot of those elements of STEM from from the PBL to the inquiry to the engineering design kind of come together. Well, um, from the standpoint of when I was in the classroom, or what I'm doing now. Well, I guess just, uh, either one. I mean, just uh, we'll start with that. I, I find it's always good to talk to teachers about favorite lessons, whether we're going to modify them to add technology in, or you know, whether you're going to just have those ideas to go with. So we, we can we can go and maybe. Do you find yourself classifying things that are kind of quick victory stuff? You can do fast, and then the things that are the yeah, longer. Um, you know, oftentimes when you go around. In fact, one of the things we've been working really hard on, one of the difficulties with um, training people in STEM is is oftentimes you only have access to a staff. You know, they ask you to come in once and you've got 45 minutes or an hour, you know, every once in a while, you know, 90 minutes, or maybe even they have you come back more than once. But to really show a STEM project, you can't really do that in that short an amount of time. I mean, you could show slides and stuff and show what you did, but I think it's best if you uh, can actually have the teachers experience that, to, you know, more or less. And, um, you know, you can come in and, and show people how to do a close read, for example, or, or something, and you can, you know, kind of show them a whole lesson in 45 minutes. You can't really do that in STEM when you're talking about, you know, how to do a project because it's just so involved and there's so many layers and 
And so to make that clear is really difficult. So um, often when um, we go in to remodel, you know, an inquiry piece, like you mentioned the, the cantilevers, where um, what I love about doing cantilever spans is that you go in and it's a minimalist lesson. I mean, you literally take, um, uh, and I'll explain briefly what it is, you get paint stirring sticks. Um, um, we got one of the uh, big box chain um, hardware stores that I won't name, but I will say one of the companies, their paint stirring sticks come out way more uniform and not twisted. Um, and so they're good ones to use. And some of the other box stores where they've donated them to us, um, they're almost unusable because they, they, they're twisted or whatever. And so they, Oh, that's important to know. But, um, um, you use paint stirring sticks and washers that are about the size of a silver dollar, half to a silver dollar. And you need hundreds and hundreds of these washers and you, when you show it to um, um, students or to teachers, if you're training teachers, you put the paint stirring stick on the edge of a table and you push it out until it falls off and you catch it. And then you show that if I put one washer on the end, look how much further I can stick it off the edge of the table. And then if I put a couple more on there, look, I can almost get it all the way out to the edge and, and the, the counterbalance of the, of the washers on the end allows it to stick way out. Okay, now, your only directions are you need to use these washers and these paint string sticks and, and make as long a span sticking out from the edge of the table as you can. And that's the only directions, and I'm not telling you anything else. And, and um, uh, it's like, oh, and, and they jump in. And so uh, I've got amazing photos and little video clips of um, um, kids as young as uh, preschool all the way up to, uh, I don't think we've done it in a high school yet, although I've had a couple of high school kids uh, jump in at uh, STEM nights that we've done at schools. Um, but uh, we've actually done it with 7th and 8th graders in, in middle schools, and it just is mind-boggling, um, the, the things that happen. Typically when you do, um, um, do it in a classroom, you have the kids in, in – teamed up in twos or threes, and uh, um, um, they jump in, and of course there's lots of, of, of um, you know, typically classrooms aren't carpeted, I know some of them are, um, and so you constantly have the sound of, of metal washers crashing on the on the ground as students, you know, are, are making lots of mistakes, I guess, um, on their way to making this really long cantilever and then we also pass out uh, um, tape measures that kind that you wrap around your waist to measure your waist so really flexible and they're and we're telling them you know constantly collect data because you never know when that thing's going to come down and then you you didn't measure how far out it got so and we always have them measure in in um, metric um, system because you know that's the measurement of science and so they're measuring at how many centimeters it is and then Put it down and then adding on and then measuring it again and and uh, and looking and, and it's funny some kids will look around and see what everybody else is doing and um, it'd be surprised how many different kind of design pieces you can do with that and uh, so if I was in a classroom back when we've 
modeled this. We spent a whole day at one school and went around to five third grades and did it in every class. And then we left all our washers and, and paint sticks there and uh, for oh, probably five weeks. And we had all kinds of suggested lessons to go along with that. So what's the longest one you can make with the fewest number of sticks and, and washers? And what's the, the longest one you can make with the most sticks and washers? And there's mathematics you can do because if you think of the edge of the table as the equal sign in 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 a in a math problem, what's the how you know how many washers and sticks do you have to have on the table to support um, you know it's really an inequality off the table and um, you know there's so you're saying you're saying the ed, the edge of the table becomes the equal sign for that then yeah, like, the, yeah, like really the tipping point equal sign yeah <laughs> um, that's awesome. But, uh, and, oh gosh, what are some of the, oh, um, um, have, you know, you're doing, if you're doing it in a classroom, the kids are doing it on their desk, have two groups start on, um, on opposite, uh, um, desks or tables, and can they get their cantilevers to, um, touch in the middle? Um, and so then that's a whole different level of cooperation. Um, and the cantilevers tend to, to start to, um, um, sag down on the end as they go out further. So that's another challenge. Um, just so much, so rich. And that's, that's actually an idea we got from uh, Dr. Ken Wesson, who's down in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. He shared that with uh, Lou Lofton, who I work with a lot, and uh, we just decided to kind of go for that. And it's, it's an incredible piece. So uh, if you're going to do it, you'll, you'll really like it. Um, I also... Uh, um, the writing piece from that I would do would be um, to have the students, after they've had experience with that, brainstorm them through what would it be like if you were one of the washers. And so you're one of the washers in this, and what would be the experiences you would have? You know, you're being stuck, and are you, are you out towards the end, and what if I fall, and, 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 and what does a hand feel like when it's, you know, and, and, and is it wobbling, and and, and, and all those pieces, it makes students think through everything that they do and how all that works to tell that story, but it's a really fun, creative story to write. So um, I That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Well, I did tweet the link. Uh, Brian had put a post a while back on his blog about the Cantilever Span Project, so I just tweeted that on our STEM Seeds. And what was the last name of that guy? You said it was Dr. Ken who? Ken West W. W-E-S-S-O-N, just like Wesson Oil. Okay. The play on words if you see him present somewhere. He's he's phenomenal. Yeah, he's um, – Is he at a university in San Francisco or where? what what does he do? I think he is aligned with one now, but he – I'm trying to remember. I should have looked that up before I um, – I know he's Googleable. He's with okay. some organization right now, and I know if you – you Google that name, there'll be some other people with similar names that'll pop up, but it'll become pretty apparent because he's uh, got a science and or engineering background, and um, he goes around and does a lot of uh, keynote speeches and that kind of thing now and, and shows phenomenal stuff. We saw him down in Sacramento just this last fall, in fact, and connected up with – he's come up and visited us up here for another project we're working on uh, – where uh, we're part of a group looking at uh, occultations in the in the sky when a um, uh, um, 
Kuiper Belt object. Basically, an asteroid or something passes in front of the star, and when that happens and you view it from different points, you can actually judge speed and the size of the object. And so um, we're part of a, a really groundbreaking group that's uh, doing that, and um, we've gotten some middle school and high school students involved in that. Um, we'll have to talk about that sometime. That's an incredible project. I wish I was more of an expert at it. It's, uh, oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, actually, talk about that. How, how does STEM make you – I mean, you're probably faced all the time with things that challenge your own knowledge. Yeah. How is that as a teacher, and how do you coach other teachers with that? Because that's a different sort of feel than, hey, you've you know right. you studied math throughout school, and you're going to teach fractions now you know, for your career right. or whatever. Yeah, great point. In fact, last night was the second of uh, two nights uh, – um, um, dealing with the uh, um, NC lab, which is, you know, learning how to code. And so I had teachers, well, I, I'm not a coder, and so um, you know, this is running CAD and, and all kinds of different things. And so the way that I set that up is um, um, there's a university professor that has this NC lab um, that he's developing, and uh, – and it's available um, mostly for free. There's a course you can take um, that you can run your students through starting in about fourth grade to learn how to code, and you run a robot around, and then more and more you get away from simple coding into more difficult um, um, lines of code. But um, um, And so the, um, the uh, course that he has um, to run students through, that costs money, but you have access to everything else for free. And so I don't know how to do that, so I went out and got an expert and brought him in and set up the class and set it up so teachers would get, in this case, it was only half of uh, um, um, an in-service credit for the state because um, it was uh, only uh, eight and a half hours. But uh, that's one way to do it. Um, this telescope piece we're doing, which is called RECON, R-E-C-O-N, and I'm not going to remember what the letters stand for right now, but they have a website. Um, um, and that's uh, um, Dr. Mark Booley out of, uh, I believe it's University of Colorado um, in Boulder. And he's like one of the top um, um, astronomers in, in the world. And he and um, a professor down at uh, – Cal Poly, um, San Luis Obispo, um, who's actually a science educator, um, education professor, came up with this project. And so to be able to view these Kuiper Belt objects, they've set up 10 teams. They got, I know, like a $3 million grant, and now that's going to explode because it's been so successful. And they've got 10 teams that range from about 200 miles south of where I am to about 200 miles north, and on a night when they know one of these occultations is going to take place, we go out sometimes at 1 o'clock in the morning and set up our telescopes that were part of the grant, these kinds of telescopes. It's an 11-inch telescope, and you uh, find three points in the sky and align it to that, and then the computer and GPS system on these telescopes takes over, and you you the um, – the object that you're going to look at is usually so faint you can't even see it, so you have to use the computer to align on the field in the sky where this is, so you actually align on a, a pattern of stars in the sky, and then you track this object, and then you record 
um, on a video recorder um, for a certain amount of time. And so what that allows is because you've got up to 10 different angles on this thing, they can use that data to find speed and size, and you're trying to learn a lot about those Kuiper Belt. Kuiper Belt is, you know, you know about the, the uh, asteroid that, belt between Earth and Mars. Say, well, the Kuiper Belt is similar, but it's outside the, uh, the Pluto is part of the Kuiper Belt. So um, um, there, um, in fact, okay. we did Pluto and we did uh, passed in front of the star in one of our practice runs, and we, we did that. But um, 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 And so they've got high – it's mainly a middle and high school student piece where they're actually doing some of the math, and they're running the telescope and triangulating. And, and um, I know Jim Bean, who's a science uh, teacher down in Carson City, Nevada, um, he's just doing incredible stuff with his students. Um, as part of that project. And uh, now they're going to add on to that, and it's going to go from the Mexican border all the way to Canada in a line. Because when these objects go by, you know, think of an eclipse of the sun um, and how that'll, when they show where you're going to be able to see it, it's usually just a, a wide band across the earth. Well, these are really narrow bands. You've got to be, you know, in a, to, to, to catch these. And so that's why it's important that they line us up. And so we're kind of along the crest of the Sierra Nevada um, range, um, kind of in a line from, you know, Mexico to Canada. So it's well, work not, not well, It's pretty incredible. A lot of the excitement and amazing things I think you've done have come, or at least some of them, have come from collaborations, you know, with, with colleges. So can you talk a little bit about that? How, how did you get that going in the classroom? And then talk a little bit about those collaborations. Well, for example, um, our high-altitude balloon piece, um, a teacher I worked with for years. What you're, what you're talking about right now, experiments and wondering how we could get plugged in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we were, we originally, in fact, uh, um, uh, Doug Taylor, who um, is now a uh, um, technology um, and ed tech trainer um, in the school district here, um, he and I talked together for a number of years and he saw this piece these two college students did where they put a cell phone and a camera and some some of those, you know, hand warmers that you buy at the at the sports store and you, know, you do this and that activates them and they stay warm to keep stuff warm. And they bought a high-altitude balloon and filled it up with helium from those tanks that you can buy. to You buy the party kit with the tank and it comes with, you know, 50 balloons, you know, little balloons. And so they used those tanks and they blew up a weather balloon and sent it up to like 60,000 feet, and then they used the, supposedly used the uh, cell phone because it had GPS in it and everything to to track it so they could go and get the camera that they had on it, you know, afterwards. And um, we saw that and thought, wow, let's do that. And so we started to do that, and then we found out that the mechanical engineering department at the local university was doing some of that kind of work. So we set up a meeting really just to pick their brains on how to do it, well, they were such experts at they ended up, you know, helping us out. And I always love tying in to different levels of education or or industry or whatever and tying into those experts. And these guys were incredible. Um, um, so, you know, that really got that project. Um, and, and, it, and then in the meantime, because of what they saw us do with it, they even set up a, a – a couple of classes and got a grant 
and were able to give away balloon flights. And they designed these kits to, with all the stuff in it to track them. And because they they use ham radio um, to track and GPS and um, a thing called a spot that sends out a signal every um, um, ten minutes um, that you can latch on to find these is, things. Is that what you do when you're hiking or whatever? When you've got a GPS yeah, that does something? Spot. It's that yeah that you can ping out to um, to send out your location and they things your location. Those. Yeah. So hey, we got our we got our first live question. So Bob sure. Fisher is in Thompson, Manitoba, Canada, and he says, "Where do I find out about participation in the Kyber Belt project?" Um, go find. Um, um, we'll put it in the show notes for starters, Rob. Yeah, but we'll, um, we find it. If you can right now, even just do a Google search for Recon R E C O N, and maybe throw telescope in the search, and you'll. You'll find their website, and they they have links to everything, you know, what it is and how it's going to work. I don't – I mean, you can certainly be and, – and we'd encourage this to the max. You can certainly be part of it. I don't know if you can be one of the teams, but, um, um, but uh, you know, if that you provide your own equipment and whatever, I don't – and you were in the right spot, I don't know if they'd, uh, um, you know – somehow let you be part of it, I um, I don't think they'd necessarily be against it outright, for sure. I mean, they want, this is exactly what they want to encourage is is teacher and, and student's um, connection with that. So um, uh, Dr. Mark Bowie, his last name is B-U-I-E, um, um, and I think it's University of Colorado or Colorado State in Boulder, Colorado, is uh, the the leader of that? Um, and spell his name one more time. Mark Bui B U B U I E. Okay. So if you do a search for those things, you'll you'll come across it. And there's yeah. contact uh, um, stuff in there. So if that's something you want to be part of, um, you know, um, in some way, contact him. Um, and John, oh shoot, my mind today. Um, who it's is okay. the professor at um, um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, who he's the, they're kind of co-leaders of that. Um, he'd be the other one. And his, his name will be on that website and, and his contact information as well. John Keller. Okay. Yeah. John Keller. And, and they're, uh, in St. Louis Obispo, the TNO Recon Research and Education Cooperative Education Network. Is that it? No, that's it. Yeah. And, in didn't Google amazing. Okay, so I'm tweeting that to Rob, and we'll we'll include that in the show notes as well. Very good. If you've got other questions, please uh, <laughs> please share it. You're blowing my mind, Ryan. Get me real excited because you know those kind of collaborations are just so rare in in schools and classrooms, right? We tend to be very siloed. We tend to think about our content areas. We don't think about elementary students collaborating with the local university mechanical engineers. Right. So, so how do you? Let's I mean, talk about that. Real quick, because, um, you know, like the cantilever spans piece can be the kind of an inquiry piece that you could even use if all you want to do with your students is teach them how to do an inquiry piece. Or we use it a lot because it's so engaging so quickly when we train teachers because they then, oh, okay, and now here's how you could have your kids write about that or da, 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 or here's where you could take it. And it's a little bit easier for them to latch on to. But I think, well, I don't think, I know, STEM also has to be where you do a long-term 
project that's got you know many facets and and pieces and that even grows as you get into it because you and especially the kids will come up with ideas that make it even better and and our the when we do balloon launches especially when I was in the classroom these became like the perfect kind of project that you want to do because they involve the science and the engineering and there was lots of data generated you could do math around and then there's lots of reading and writing and then um, oral language. Um, when I do presentations on STEM, I talk about the fact that you want to do STEM is as much about because it's language intense as anything. Because when you do it well and you're debriefing the lessons and whatever, it's, it's tons of writing. And that writing becomes an assessment piece for you because your students' writing they either understand it or they don't, and that becomes really apparent. And so right away, and if they're using blogs, which I did, and they're they're posting those, and so blogs are moderated, so before the, the student post goes live, you're seeing it, and you're quickly able to assess that, wow, we don't quite really get that yet. And so I'm not going to post these, these um, blog posts yet. I'm going to save them, and tomorrow we're going to go in and, and have another conversation or do another lesson, and then have them look at what they wrote and let them see that they didn't quite have it. And then, okay, now let's edit those pieces, which is just a phenomenal piece of that. And so on the balloon thing, we not only learned about, um, we were supposed to be learning about the layers of the atmosphere. And so, you know, it's rife with that, of course. And so what are the characteristics of the layers? And so we were doing that science piece. And then we were designing um, experiments to send up, like the, a little party balloon that we attached and had a camera on it so we could see what happens to the air pressure in that balloon as it as it goes up and um, and of course what it does is it starts to expand and then and then even bursts because it just can't take it anymore um, because the higher you go the less air pressure there is but the air pressure in the balloon is a constant so it just keeps expanding because the air pressure outside is less and it's you know so which is exactly why um, weather balloons burst because they they keep expanding until they just can't take it anymore, and they burst. So, um, so you're doing all those pieces, but then you're also um, doing things like because students are blogging about it and they're getting comments from students all around the world back. You're also getting um, sharing the same kind of lessons that you're doing in class over Skype with uh, classes in in um, New Zealand and in New York and in Canada. We crushed cans with air pressure, the old soda can that you you uh, put on a hot plate with a little bit of water in it until the steam's coming out, and then you grab it with tongs and turn it upside down so the opening on the top of the can is upside down in the water, and the whole can just crushes, and you can do larger cans than that. To, and, uh, and then you don't tell the kids, you know, they see what happened, but why did that happen? And then you keep teaching lessons until they can tell you why the can crushed. And you... Uh, if you take the tissue, that old tissue paper liner out of the old Ditto Machine Masters and fold it like a letter and get it to stand up and start the top on, on fire and it burns down and then when it gets towards the bottom, the heat rising pulls it up in the air and then the flame goes out. So we would do those activities in class. The students would do them and they'd videotape them and then embed those on their blogs. And so every student had those two little video clips that are like, 10 or 15 seconds long, and then they'd have to write the explanation for that. Well, that would get other kids excited. They'd want their teachers doing those, 
Well, they'd have us Skype in and my students would do those activities for them. So now they're having to, and, and most of my students were, um, I was at 100% free lunch school and the bulk of my students were second language learners. So you're forcing your students, well, forcing sounds like I'm poking them stick, but you're making them interact in ways where they're having to use language at a high level. And so they're coming to you asking you for the words and, and learning to use a thesaurus well and, and whatever to be able to find the language pieces to be articulate. And, and, and they've got to really say what they're supposed to say so that somebody understands what they mean. I mean, you just push that a lot. And you want to, you know, this is going live to the world. So you want it to be good, right? So it's a great motivator. But they're also having to then, if they're presenting live on the, on, on video conference, they want to be articulate in their spoken language. And so you give them some time to practice that, not to write a script. They can certainly make notes and whatever, but you want them to get to the point where they can, you know, do that. And, and my class would always have uh, an early experience where we video conference in or, or do some kind of an in-class thing where they're, they're, you know, reporting out. And there's lots of that not talking very loud and long gaps. Um, uh, uh, in their thinking and, and then you're able to talk, you talk about that and, and then they see the importance of really being prepared to present. So there's just tons of, really strong language pieces. And then it's almost like, well, that's right. And we're teaching science here. You know, it's um, the language piece is so important. And then you start collecting data, any data that comes. Uh, we sent the balloon up and we knew that it had gotten up on that first one to 107,096 feet. So then one day in math class, you say, okay, guys, so 107,096 feet. Um, how many inches is that? Oh, right, in their groups, and so, and then as groups think they have the answer, you're posting that up, and then they see that all the answers are different, and you're able to point out, so if it was 107,000 feet, could it only be 86,000 inches? Well, yeah, because inches are smaller, okay, but um, if I have two feet, how many inches? 24, so two feet, but 24, oh, yeah. There's more inches, so that right. could be the right and it's just it's just fraught with. So it's all kinds of all kinds of connections. You're describing just lots and lots of connections to, to these experiences. You know, making it real. Being as you are is in the coordinator role and having that challenge sometimes of, hey, can you do this in 45 minutes? Are are you looking or have you found ways to work with a cohort or to work with a group of teachers? You know, kind of over a longer period of time where you get more touches and, and you just get yeah. more of a chance to build relationship and have them see this over yes. time. Some, some schools are, are asking us to come back more. Um, right now, I think a lot of schools, um, you know, Nevada is one of the states that um, has decided to base uh, teacher evaluations 50% on student test scores. So, um, the, so teachers are learning this new evaluation system and, and there's a couple other things, and I'm sure a lot of teachers that are listening to this are going to be nodding their heads, are being, you know, faced with uh, learning a lot of new things. So there's a lot of um, uh, uh, pent up um, wanting to learn more about STEM, but 
um, I think uh, they feel that they're kind of overwhelmed with stuff. So oh, yeah. um, they come in some, and then they say, man, we're, we're going to have to get you guys back in here and start leading the student. We've had a couple of schools where I've gone and met with their, their PLCs at every grade level for a couple of weeks and, right. and help them plan. And, and I was just talking to that principal, in fact, uh, uh, last week, and now they're going to have me come back so we can kind of see where they got and I can consult them again on uh, – you know, where to go next and how they did and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, that's where we've got to get going for sure. And we have to. A, a couple of thoughts on that. This, the last year I've got, I've been able to do several classes over video conference with, with teachers in Montana. We've done a seven week class, but we've done it every two weeks and they've created a product each time. But man, I have loved that blend of the synchronous live video conference you know, with the online and with, you know, the expectation that you create a product, which you say, share back to our kid blog and others comment on. Um, it's just, well, I think one of the things that's really good about that is it's just, it's smaller pieces over a longer period of time where, where teachers are actually able to, to build them. And then, of course, the stories about them using it with their students and the classroom impact. I just saw maybe last week, um, I was looking for something about making iPhone apps or whatever, and this guy who sells these templates had created a course on, I think it was edX. It was one of the MOOC platforms, but, you know, it was chunked with different video pieces, and so that might be something for you to explore as well because, you know, this opportunity to blend an asynchronous video with um, – with, I mean, somehow we need immediacy. You know, you need. There's a world of content out there, but just because iTunes U is filled with courses from Yale and Stanford, it doesn't mean I've you know made time to watch any of them or, or be in them. So, I, I think uh, I don't know. That's what, part of what's churning in my mind as far as professional development and coaching and all of that is how the immediacy of the video conference and the webinar, you know, can match with the asynchronous. You know, here are videos and assignments. So. I don't know. Maybe there's a, a space in there for STEM STEM stuff because you've got so much awesome experience as well as a vision for for where that can go. Really touching all content areas and, and touching the whole school. And think of um, this: when you're, if you're going to video conference, um, I just got in the habit of any time we were going to video conference, I'd always um, about literally five minutes before we were going to conference. I'd, um, and, and the class got to know this. They'd say, Mr. Crosby, it's five minutes. Oh, oh you're right. I'd pull up um, um, Google Earth, and I'd just pull it right down literally on the roof of our classroom and then punch in the address of the school or wherever it was. Uh, uh, we uh, Skyped in Will Richardson once to talk about um, um, uh, vegetarian eating, and, and, and um, Alan Levine, he was up in uh, um, Iceland, um, and you talk to us about uh, the geology of Iceland, and, and so you just pull in right in on where they're, and then you go to that school, and you, you zoom in on the roof of that school, and then you come back up, and you, okay, so here we are down in Argentina, and look, well, Antarctica isn't that far down, look at that, that's Antarctica down there, and, and so let's go back up to, uh, and then come back down, you just cross Mexico, and came down this way, and, you know, and it just, it's amazing how much more geographically aware you make your kids in that quick five minutes, and it, connects them to that school you're going to video conference. I'd also use Google Earth a lot when we were reading a book in class to like uh, Maniac McGee that takes place in Pennsylvania. And we'd literally go to the places in Google Earth that are the places from the 
the book, and then we found out that some of the places in the book were made up. They weren't real towns, and so it was a combination of real places in Pennsylvania and places that, you know, were just made up um, um, towns to have the story take part in. And so that's another really powerful piece to use things like Google Earth works free and, and uh, um, just really simple things you can do that don't take a ton of time but are real powerful. We're we're almost to the top of the hour. I hope my wife has just started vacuuming. I don't think she realizes I'm on the Google Hangout. Um, so if anybody still has any questions, we've got a few minutes left. You can uh, just shoot a tweet to at STEM Seeds. Um, Brian, I know you've written a book on blogging. Um, you want to talk about that, and where where does book writing fit in with your advocacy for STEM and what you're what you're doing at this point? Oh wow! So yeah, the book that we just had come out not quite two years ago. Um, Lisa Parisi and I uh, co-authored a book called Making Connections with Blogging. And we're actually in the process right now of writing a book um, that's more just about the connection piece because so often we get asked, how do you make all those connections with people? And so we're kind of writing that book right now. Um, um, we're supposed to be done by June. We'll see how that goes. But, um, you know, it's just uh, – any kind of writing, you know, you got into all this through uh, blogging before I started blogging. And what you find is, is when you write your own blog, um, not only do you get schema for having your students blog, but by writing pieces, you solidify your own thinking. You often, uh, I'm sure you've had this happen, Wes, you're, you're writing even something that's kind of a rant or something, and then realize, well, when I post this, I better be able to back up what I'm saying here. And you'll actually change how you word things or rethink how you're going to say it because you realize that maybe you're just kind of, you know, you want to really be able to substantiate what you're, you're saying. And I think that's another piece that makes it powerful for kids. But blogging is so powerful because it's not only having what you wrote um, out there. It's that you get comments back and you get conversations going. But blog posts can also be just a picture or just a podcast or a combination of those things. Or And so uh, it's just – and then it doesn't matter what time it is anywhere. It's there. And, and I'm sure you've got that on your blog. You've got the little cluster map. And so all of a sudden that cluster map, every time somebody comes to your blog, it puts a dot on the map. And there's another geography time. What's that dot over there? Well, that's Africa, guys. So somebody went to our blog from Africa. And – that's a mind blower for kids. I mean, when they start seeing that they're connected to the world. And um, so, yeah, I just think blogging is such an obvious STEM piece. Um, it's powerful whether it's STEM or not. But, you know, you can post all your uh, thoughts on STEM, but then creative stories and data and just fun stuff. And, and you, know, uh, you know, you get into those conversations with kids where they come up and say, could I just write something I want at home tonight? And, Posted on my blog. And Can I write on my just for yeah, fun? I don't know, please. Writing, you know, on your own time for yeah, of course you can, and you're still going to moderate it so that they're home writing. Uh, you know, that's fine because it's not going to show up on their blog till till you see it. And 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 for anybody who doesn't know this, people that comment on on uh, blogs, those comments don't show up until you see them first. I'll also add in there. I've moderated you know thousands of blog comments, I think I blocked seven in my whole, you know, six or seven, eight years of doing that. So um, you're really not having to deal. Um, I, I have talked to some teachers that have had a 
flurry of that because they know that there's somebody out there that's trying to leave, you know, bad comments for their kids. But I haven't found that to typically be a huge problem at all. That's awesome. Well, we're going to include uh, links to a bunch of the stuff that we've talked about here in the show notes. The Google Doc is shared. So, Brian, if there's other other things that you want to put in there, um, links to you know past posts, especially maybe something on the the balloon project, and then that paper burning, uh, heat rising, you know. Um, you know, if you look at my um, at my um, TEDx Denver um, talk, I actually do. Uh, it's almost the whole thing is about all those pieces I talked about with the uh, high altitude balloon, and I show a lot of the right. other writing pieces as well. Right. So don't be yeah. afraid to go look at that. Just Google my name, um, and I'll throw the link in besides um, um, to Brian Crosby, TEDx Denver. I did another TEDx one in New York, so um, don't get okay. too confused. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for, for sharing and good luck as you continue on, on your journey. And, uh, I'm, uh, I just feel privileged to have you in my PLN. Appreciate, you know, the just in time help and things that you've shared and here in Oklahoma as, as well as I'm, I'm guessing in other places. We're going to have more folks, you know, starting off with what we began today. What is STEM? What is it not? You know, how do we build that culture? And as we, as we learn, when we keep on sharing, you know, hopefully the community is just going to continue to grow with people who are going to be collaborative, you know, be open and uh, be generous with their with their ideas. Because I that's that is the fuel on which <laughs> learning is, you know, that, that that's how the fire gets made in, in class is off those collaborations and those ideas. Mm-hmm. So anything else on your list you want to share that we didn't get to? Oh, man, there's so much. I mean, we didn't get to. Uh some of the, like, my students did a thing on uh, uh, um, a local animal park um, that I was going to uh, share, partly because that's why I was asking about if you had anything like that. And, and right. There's so much I could share that this would have to be, but, you know, maybe you can have me back sometime. We'll, and we'll do it uh, again. Uh, yeah, we'll do it again. And I think uh, Amy and I are going to try. We were going to, we we're thinking about Thursday, but I think it may be Friday this week. We're on spring break. We're hoping to do two of these a month. So yeah, let's, we'll check our calendars. And if you've also got other recommendations for people who we could have on, you know, I mean, it's great to have folks, folks on live, but like podcasts, I'm, I'm positive we'll have more people, you know, check out recordings and links and stuff like that than have the opportunity to tune in live. So. All right. Well, where can people find you online? We should have started with this at the beginning. Um, my blog is uh, Learning is Messy. So, you know, again, Google my name and Learning is Messy. Uh, it's learningismessy.com uh, um, slash blog. Um, uh, if you just go to learningismessy.com, you'll actually get to a page where I've got uh, some of the videos that my students have made, award-winning videos. Um, you know, we didn't even... And talk about uh, when we Skyped in uh, my student with leukemia for most of a year, and uh, that video has had over 2 million downloads. And so there's a video that the students produced, yeah. um, you know, that, that went viral fourth graders. Um, yeah. So, uh, but learning is messy. Um, I'll, I'll throw into uh, here the links to um, my STEM wiki page, uh, if you didn't already, and uh, my class wiki page that's still up and going because I use it uh, as examples all the time and anything else I think of. So, 
Okay, that sounds good. And Kathy Broadlick, had, uh, who uh, I don't know where MSD Warren Township is. I need to Google that. But uh, it's talked about Google Lit Trips and opportunities to create literacy across the subject areas. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think of STEM and they think about maybe the marginalization of writing and language arts and things. But if anybody who's been listening to you, they've heard, yeah, there's so many ways that that can be can be extended and expanded and made concrete, especially with cognitive dissonance when kids are yeah. like, what? <laughs> what was that? All right. Well, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day, and we will check in with you later. All right. Thanks, Wes, and everybody.